Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Anybody who has worked for some time on economic development as a practitioner or as a scholar is sure to have become frustrated at some point, probably earlier rather than later. And this is true no matter what view of development uh, you hold, since growth and reform rarely follow a sustained and predictable path and of course almost always fall short of a country's uh, potential or your expectations with too many cases of backtracking, slow growth, and other kinds of disappointments. One of my great frustrations uh, in, of working in Washington is that any discussion on development tends to devolve quickly into a discussion about foreign aid. But the focus on foreign aid uh, to me seems to be a great and terrible distraction from the many important issues uh, that actually really matter to development, including the evolution of institutions, economic policy, local customs, political arrangements, and so on, all of which, when they do improve, tend to do so in a matter that is independent of the aid relationship. What really causes development and change? That is the question that matters, but that always seems to be answered uh, by experts from the perspective of the technocrat, from the perspective of the top down. That's why I'm so pleased to be able to host Bill Easterly uh, today, because to use his words, it's time to leave the small aid debate behind and to engage in the big development uh, debate. And as he is wont to do every, four, every few years, he has written a book that challenges the establishment and suggests a debate that has never really happened within uh, the development community. It's the debate that puts freedom and the rights of the poor at the center of development. It's a debate in which Bill asks why a different branch of economics, that is development economics, emerged for, for poor countries and how experts following that way of thinking have generated policies and recommendations that very often would rightly be considered uh, unacceptable where they proposed in rich countries. Bill's book, The Tyranny of Experts, Economists, Dictators, and the Forgotten Rights of the Poor, comes out at a good time. Uh, with this vast increase in human freedom that we've seen around the world in the past 25 years, we can, in fact, see and celebrate a tremendous amount uh, of human progress. And indeed, uh, the increase in freedom itself is progress. We can also use the various varied experiences to test out the role of economic, civil, and political freedom in promoting development. And an increasing number of scholars are doing just that. To give just one example, the Nobel laureate Ronald Coase and his uh, co-author Ning Wang wrote a book two years ago explaining China's extraordinary development as a bottom-up process in which uh, the biggest areas of reform in farming, in rural industry, the special economic zones, and so on, uh, were not imposed from above, and their successes often surprised the Communist Party's leadership. Inspired by the insights of Friedrich Hayek uh, on spontaneous order and the importance of dispersed knowledge in society, they recommend China also adopt a free market in ideas if it is to continue to develop and to successfully democratize. Relying on uh, Hayekian insights, other scholars are making contributions also 
in the areas of monetary policy, law, banking, property rights, and so on, and now on economic development. So let me welcome Bill Easterly back to the Cato Institute and to the Hayek Auditorium. Bill is certainly one of the most important development economists in the world, and I would say that his work is very much in the tradition of the great Peter Bauer, who was always skeptical and, and wrote with such skepticism about man's power over man, and who always stressed the importance of personal choice. As many of you know, uh, Bill, many years ago, used to work at the World Bank. And then when he wrote his first book, uh, the, the Elusive Quest for Growth, uh, he got fired from the World Bank because it said a number of truths that were unacceptable to the orthodoxy there. Uh, he has since become a professor at New York University. He is also a director at its Development Research Institute. And his previous book, The White Man's Burden, focused exclusively on aid, which this book definitely is not about. Please help me welcome Bill Easterly. Thank you, Ian. Let me do a sound check. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah, good. So I wanted to talk to you tonight about the tyranny of experts. There'll be uh, two simple messages in the talk. One is by the book. Uh, the second will emerge as I go along. Let me start the talk tonight with a story about two men who two men who arrived in Stockholm, Sweden four decades ago. Uh, some of you in the auditorium will recognize at least one of these men. How many recognize at least one? Uh, the one on the right is Friedrich Hayek. This auditorium is named the Hayek Auditorium. So I... Now, uh, extra credit for anybody who can get the individual on the left. I've already given you one clue. <laughs> anybody? Yes? Very good. Please give that gentleman a free book. <laughs> so Gunnar Myrdal and Friedrich Hayek got the Nobel Prize and arrived in Stockholm in December 1974 to receive it. The tragedy of development economics is that these two had directly opposite views on how development happened, and yet the debate between them never happened. Gunnar Myrdal had a frankly and openly stated authoritarian view of how development happens, and of course, Hayek had a view of development happening as a result of free people and free institutions. So let me set out for you this afternoon this debate. And let me explain how, without a debate, Myrdal's views carried the day in, in development thinking, still today, and created three biases that I'm going to talk to you about against freedom. The first bias that Myrdal introduced against freedom and that Hayek violently disagreed with was a double standard, the double standard bias, a double standard in which we in the West and we, especially in development, 
might have cared about our own rights as rich people, but did not care about the rights or freedoms of poor people. Now, Mirdal was very explicit about this in his writings. And the, the dueling writings that never debated each other, never engaged each other, happened in the 40s and 50s, many, many decades ago. And yet these views are still very, very much today in contention and yet still not debated. So Myrdal said the development effort had to be staged by the governments of underdeveloped countries that had what he called a largely illiterate and apathetic citizenry. He argued that even what he called the autocratic element in Soviet communism, even that, such totalitarian tyranny, satisfied this is another quote directly from Myrdal, satisfies a predisposition of the masses in these countries who for centuries have been conditioned to respond positively to direction from authority. And Myrdal thought that development efforts would be largely ineffective unless they were what he called, quote, regulations backed by compulsion. That is, supporting them by force. And then Myrdal stated explicitly the double standard. Here's a, an exact quote from, from Meridal. He said, none of the experts, the, um, which were the American and the European experts, sees any other way out of the mounting difficulties in underdeveloped countries, however different their attitude may be towards economic problems at home. So coercion for poor people, and Meridal was, uh, was willing to allow freedom for rich people. This double standard unfortunately still exists today in development, that we fundamentally don't care or don't care enough about the freedom and rights of poor people. Let me tell you a story from today. On the morning of Sunday, February 28, 2010, the villagers of Mubende, Uganda were awakened by the sound of gunfire. They ran out of their houses and found men with guns waiting outside who immediately started to burn down their houses and to torch their crops and to shoot their livestock. They kept the farmers at gunpoint from rescuing their own homes. The, the march the farmers away at gunpoint told them the land was no longer theirs. 20,000 farmers deprived of their rights to land, deprived of their human rights not to be coerced and abused. Was it sadly an eight-year-old child died in the fire because they were prevented from rescuing their own homes. And this was taking place as a World Bank forestry project, which had some experts had decided this land would better be used for forestry than for food crops. And when implemented inside of an authoritarian system by an authoritarian aid agency, the result was this. This is the tyranny of experts at its most extreme. And what's most revealing to me about the development community is what happened afterwards. Unlike many other rights abuses and violations of the freedoms of poor people that happen around the world, this one made it onto the front page of the New York Times. And the World Bank promised the next day that they would investigate what happened. Four years later, that investigation has never happened. And what's more than that is no one else has really paid much attention to any of these events, and no one has protested either the original events or the non-investigation by the World Bank. This whole story says volumes to me about how little the development community really cares 
about the rights of poor people that even such an egregious rights violation did not lead to any protest. Now, Hayek was very clear on uh, freedom as both the source of development empirically. By the way, one, another strange thing that this double standard did is that it removed as possible models for what was then called third world development, the, the examples of those countries that had actually succeeded at development, the first world. Because the paternalistic assumption was that the first world methods would not work in the third world. The first world peoples might have gotten developed because of their own free institutions, but Myrdal's double standard meant that those would not apply so even the, in the third world, so even the debate about evidence was sort of rigged from the beginning in this way, that here we have a body of evidence about freedom and development, and we're going to, in considering how to succeed at development, we're going to exclude all the examples of those who have succeeded at development, which happen to be the more free countries. And so that even biased the empirical debate about the effect of freedom on development from the very beginning, that the success stories of freedom in the first world were left out. So Hayek condemned all of this right from the beginning. In fact, he condemned it before it even happened in The Road to Serfdom. He was very clear that, uh, that the change from a rigidly organized hierarchical system, in Hayek's word, Hayek's words, into, into one in which people could shape their own life was the root of prosperity in the West. He condemned all the societies everywhere in the world that he had observed in which the individual is merely a means to serve the ends of the higher entity called the society or the nation. From this followed what Hayek called the disregard of the life and happiness of the individual along with the intolerance and brutal suppression of dissent. And Hayek explicitly opposed the paternalistic double standard. He understood how it led to the denial of liberty to the objects of this paternalism. He said, this is a, a, the final quote from Hayek in this first phase of the debate. The more a person dislikes the strange, the other, the them, the, the Africans, the Asians, and thinks his own way is superior, the more he tends it regarded as his mission to civilize others. Hayek wrote that in, in The Road to Serfdom in 1944. A few years later, the word civilize would be changed to develop. The second part of the, of the debate that never happened was a never, another bias introduced by Myrdal that we can call the benevolent autocrat bias. The bias to believe in benevolent autocrats. So Myrdal envisaged a government and its entourage as the active subject in planning and the rest of the people as the relatively passive objects emerging from planning. Now in this world, anything good that ever happens in a country, who gets the credit? The authoritarian ruler gets all the credit for anything good that ever happens in this world, in this worldview that was in, introduced by Myrdal. And this worldview is still very much in the mindset today. So there have been a few years of good growth in Ethiopia, which in the volatile world of, of, of low-income economies doesn't really mean all that much. There's lots of booms and busts 
in developing economies. You cannot take all that seriously a few years of good growth. USAID actually admitted that a lot of their recent growth was just recovery from a drought. But that did, that did not stop everyone from giving credit to the Ethiopian ruler at the time, Melis Inoue, for the growth. Bill Gates said that, quote, Melis Inoue has made real progress in helping the people of Ethiopia. USAID celebrated how Melis Inoue had made tremendous progress transforming its economy and society. Uh, World Bank President Dr. Jim Kim celebrated Ethiopia's transformational change, which he attributed to a, quote, stable government. Stable is kind of a, one of those euphemistic words that means dictator. Uh, that takes a long-term perspective, and a, the long-term perspective being, I want to stay in power as long as possible. Uh, the other thing strange about declaring Meles to be a benevolent autocrat on the basis of a few years of, uh, of growth and a boom and bust economy is we're also directly omitting any evidence of his malevolence, of him not being so benevolent, which included shooting demonstrators down in the streets after rigged elections in 2005. He was caught by human, right, human Rights Watch manipulating famine relief to go only to ruling party supporters in 2010. He introduced another forced resettlement scheme uh, in Ethiopia called villagization. So like the Uganda example, far, farm, farmers were taken their lands were taken away from them by soldiers. They were marched away to government model villages that were anything but modeled. They lacked basic services like water. The, the farmers' land rights and human rights were violently disregarded. And anyone who protested this, he put in jail. Specifically, he jailed a peaceful blogger named Iskender Nega in 2012, sentenced him to, 20, to 18 years in jail. In fact, uh, to, to bring the story totally up to date, uh, Melis has since died of natural causes and has been succeeded by another dictator named Haile Mariam. Uh, John, Secretary of State John Kerry just arrived in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And to show how seriously the Ethiopian government took any concern for human rights that might be emanating from the US government, uh, the Ethiopian government celebrated his arrival by jailing six bloggers and three journalists and sent sending them to join Eskinder Nega in prison. Uh, that's how little they cared about any US human rights concerns, which are, were basically non-existent to begin with. So Hayek, again, was very prescient on all of this. He said to, he, he warned the experts in the road to serfdom, don't trust the benevolent autocrats to do good things. He objected to anyone who who does not object to coercion or arbitrary power. This is Hayek's protest. He, he is criticizing those who do not object to coercion or arbitrary power so long as it is used for what this person, this expert regards as the right purposes. And so the main hope must be that the wise and the good will rule, in Hayek's words. And so, which Hayek quickly refuted in another chapter in The Road to Serfdom called why the worst get on top, about why autocrats are not benevolent. Because in, this, in an autocratic system, there will be special opportunities for the ruthless and the unscrupulous. In such a system, the readiness to do bad things becomes a path to promotion and power. So this, this bias to believe in benevolent autocrats 
which leads us to give credit for any good things that ever happen anywhere to any autocrat that happens on the scene, is the second bias that biases against, biases the development community against freedom as a path to development and in favor of an authoritarian technocratic approach driven by a tyranny of experts who supply technical solutions to benevolent autocrats to implement them. The third bias is probably the, the hardest one to get over. And I, I put together another, another Hayek slide. This is the one that is probably going to be impossible to ever convince the development community to give up this, this bias. It's the bias in favor of conscious direction instead of spontaneous solutions. Of course, conscious, the idea of conscious direction creates a big demand for experts. And Hayek, in fact, noted that uh, he had been promised himself as an economist that he would have had a much more important role in any sort of consciously directed society as an economist, but he declined that role. I want to follow that tradition that I decline. I used to be an, one of those experts that benefited from the belief in conscious direction, but I've repented. I've recovered. I'm no longer an expert. I'm a recovering expert. Uh, but of course, that doesn't apply to the large community of development experts who they believe are, that they are in charge of consciously directing development and making development happen through conscious direction. So Murdahl, again, it's again the, the tragedy of the Murdahl-Hayek debate that didn't happen. Murdahl had said this very clearly. What these countries need is a program that will induce changes simultaneously in a great number of conditions that hold down their growth that the experts can design a whole social engineering package that will develop countries. Uh, still today, these beliefs seem to be very, very prevalent. After World Bank President Dr. Jim Kim was elected, his first speech as World Bank President announced his own position on conscious direction. In the annual meetings in Tokyo in October, on October 11, 2012, Dr. Kim called for the World Bank to become the Solutions Bank. The bank should offer what he called evidence-based, non-ideological solutions to development challenges. Non-ideological is a code word for you're not allowed to debate freedom versus autocracy. That debate is censored. <laughs> Uh, the bank should reach agreement with other development agencies, with foundations, with academics, to advance shared goals for these solutions. Uh, Dr. Kim called for a new science of delivery. This is so technocratic, it's an embarrassment to the other technocrats uh, to implement the evidence-based solutions. And this new science would include the design, execution, and demonstration of results. Now, again, Hayek was prescient on this. Hayek never actually used the word technocracy, but it's pretty clear that that's the set of ideas that he had in mind. Technocracy was a word that was invented in the early 20th century that literally means rule of experts. So the prevailing technocratic approach to development, the word technocrat literally means tyranny of experts. The experts are in charge. So to Hayek, this set of ideas that, that I would call technocracy represented the uncritical transfer to the problems of society of the habits of thought of the natural scientist and the engineer. 
As it happens, Dr. Jim Kim is a medical doctor. He's trained as a natural scientist. That's why he's so trained to think in terms of conscious direction, of direct solutions to problems. And Hayek noted that the technocrats, what he called impatience for quick results, had led them to reject the spontaneous forces found in a free society. And the seduction of conscious direction, Hayek said, is so great because the person who actually does things is always going to be far more popular than the economist who is what Hayek called the, the odious individual who sits back in his armchair and explains why the well-meaning efforts of the experts are frustrated. Sounds like he had already read in advance some of my book reviews. Hayek offered an alternative that we call political and economic freedom, liberty, individual rights, whatever you want to call it, you, you know what we're talking about, that relies on individuals' freedom to choose and not on experts. And this is one of my favorite Hayek quotes of all, uh, that's so anti-expert and so much in favor of freedom. It is because every individual knows so little and because we rarely know which of us knows best. We don't even know who are the experts. It's because of that that we trust the independent and competitive efforts of many to induce, uh, and this final phrase is, is one of my favorites, to induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. That we don't even know who the experts are, we don't know who is going to solve our problems, but we know in a free society, there will be the competitive efforts of many that will induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. It might be something like this, uh, that we didn't know we wanted, and now every, everywhere I go in New York and Washington, I see people walking around like this. <laughs> Apparently, people really wanted this and didn't know about it until a competitive, obscure entrepreneur named Steve Jobs invented this. So what, what can we say about this direct solutions mentality about this in development? This is really, really important. This is really at the heart of what development gets wrong today. Let me give you as an illustration uh, an individual in Korea. Uh, his name is Chung Ju Young. I hope you haven't heard of him, because if you have, it'll give away the punchline. Uh, he was born in a, a, a poor village named Asan on the east coast of the Korean Peninsula. And Chung, as a young man, had a problem that really needed one of Dr. Jim Kim's solutions from the Solutions Bank. His, he lived on a, on a family farm where the land was so infertile it didn't produce enough food to eat, and they were going hungry. It didn't produce enough food to feed him, his parents, his siblings. His own words was, the soil was not very fertile. It did not produce enough harvest for a big family. You left home before dawn. You worked 15 to 16 hours a day. Even if you worked so hard, you'd ha you did not have enough to eat. We'd, we'd eat oatmeal late in the morning, skip lunch, eat bean porridge at night, and go to bed. Now, how would the Solutions Bank approach this problem? They would. Uh, appoint an agricultural expert to come to the village of Asan, where, where Chung lived. And they would try to solve the problem of infertile soil so that the, they could produce more food, for, so that Chung could produce more food. But Chung actually understood something 
which is at the heart of how, of how a free society works. Chung understood that the, the worst way to solve your own problem is to try to solve your own problem. This sounds very paradoxical and Buddha-like, Buddha but it's, it's at the heart of why development is wrong today and at the heart of why a free society works. The worst way to solve your own problem is to try to solve your own problem. So Chung did, did not try to do that. He instead did something else. He tried to solve other people's problems. And then in exchange for the, the income that he would get by solving other people's problems, he would earn enough food to eat to buy enough, he would earn enough to buy enough food to eat that he could buy food for his family. And he could give up on the infertile soil, which was never going to grow enough food. In fact, still today, decades later, that district has never produced food and is still in chronic famine today. So the way that, you could think of the way that uh, Chung operated is he sort of joined this association of, decentralized association of problem solvers. It's an association in which everyone tries to solve everyone else's problem. It's an association that has no president, it holds no meetings. It doesn't have anyone, any, it doesn't consult any experts from the World Bank or any development experts in general, but it does solve many of our problems. It's called the invisible hand. It's called the market. Uh, Chung's uh, solving of other people's problems initially was pretty modest. He opened an auto repair shop. And he moved to Seoul, the capital, and opened an auto repair shop that was quite prosperous. This was, now I can give you the timeline. This was immediately after World War II. The auto repair shop did quite well because it was at first dealing with the Japanese occupiers, then with the American occupiers repairing, attending to all of their motor vehicle repair needs, and he earned a lot of money, which he invested back into his business. And now I'm going to have to give away the... Uh, the punchline because by telling you the name of his business, his auto repair shop was, he gave the Korean name for modern, which is the word Hyundai. I've just told you the story of the fun founder of Hyundai, which today produces, today is the world's fourth largest auto company. Korea is the world, for, world's fourth largest auto producer with operations in every part of the world. The quality award-winning Hyundai Sonata sedan is thriving in the American market today, all because of what Chung started to do when he realized that the worst way to solve your own problem is to try to solve your own problem. The best way is to solve other people's problems in exchange for them solving your problem. This is uh, such a, a radical view. Uh, you know, the sad thing about uh, this invisible hand, this market explanations is, it's embarrassingly simple. It's Econ 101, it's taught in every Principles of Economics course, and it's been completely forgotten in the world of development. That's the only reason that I'm forced to regurgitate to you these very simple principles of how the invisible hand and the market work. And it really, you know, it really does surprise you how much, when you think about it, we do rely on strangers to solve all of our problems. I mean, to give you another random example, this is a classic New York street scene. The other day in New York, I walked out of a doctor's appointment and I had not brought an umbrella. I walked up to a perfect stranger who did have an umbrella. It was raining heavily and I said to the stranger, please give me your umbrella. 
And he did. And I walked away with his umbrella, and he was left without an umbrella. This is a case where a stranger solved my problem of getting an umbrella. Now, why was that stranger, being a New Yorker, not horribly offended that I had demanded his umbrella? Well, it's because he was an umbrella retailer on the street, and I paid him $10, and he gave me his umbrella. We, have, we are constantly surrounded by strangers solving our problems, and that is how development solves problems. Of course, some developing countries have realized this on their own over time and have progressively granted greater both economic and political freedom over time, despite the predilections for authoritarianism of the development experts. And Korea is a famous example of this. Here is a, a pretty famous photo of the difference between authoritarian development in, the, in North Korea in a very, very extreme form, even more extreme than can be accepted by uh, the World Bank. This North Korea went a little too far in their enthusiasm for authoritarian development from the World Bank's point of view. Um, the photo on the left is taken in 1992, and the photo on the right is taken in 2008. So it shows you both the difference between North and South Korea and also the rapid development of South Korea. South Korea had this explosion of econ first economic freedom and then an explosion of political freedom, and it's today a member of the first world with, with a fairly complete set of political and economic freedoms for individuals. And it's also an important lesson about uh, growth miracles in East Asia that we, they are sometimes spuriously attributed to authoritarian rulers who are given the credit for these growth miracles. What we're not being told is that what's happening during these growth miracles is a decline in autocracy and a growth in freedom. So when we're looking for an explanation for rapid economic growth, which is the change in development, if the prediction of Hayek is that a high level of freedom produces a high level of development, then it follows that a, the, 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 the prediction would also predict that a positive change in freedom would predict a rapid rate of economic a rapid rate of change of economic development, which we call rapid economic growth. And it's in fact true that almost all of the, the, the sustained growth miracles around the world, most of which are clustered in East Asia, have had big positive changes in either economic or political freedom or both. And that's, again, uh, 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 another piece of evidence for the debate that never happened in favor of freedom and development and against autocrats getting the credit for development. So let me start wrapping up here. The, the tragedy was that this debate between Hayek's ideas and Myrdal's ideas never happened, and Myrdal's ideas still reign supreme in the development world today. It's really time we had that debate. We should really talk about the double standard on freedom for the poor should not be a double standard. We should talk about, are the benevolent autocrats benevolent? Well, actually, no, they're not. We should talk about, is conscious direction successful direction? Actually, no, it's not. Development emerges from spontaneous solutions much more than conscious direction. The sad thing to me as a development economist is that, is that really, our preference for our biases, these three biases that I talked about towards authoritarianism, put us on the wrong side of the fight for freedom that's going on around the world tonight, from Ukraine to Venezuela to China to Ethiopia. 
The trend towards greater freedom is already positive over the last several decades, but there's still a long way to go. And it's sad to me that we in development have, have really been on the wrong side. Let's really decide whether we want to switch sides at this point. Let me close with some words from the imprisoned blogger Eskender Nega in Ethiopia that I talked about. He wrote in July 2013, talking about the real possibilities that the future holds for freedom, that it will no longer be seen as the esoteric virtue of Westerners, but the ubiquitous expression of our common humanity. Eskender Nega is languishing as he writes these words in a jail for 18 years in Ethiopia. I had the moving experience of meeting his wife, Sir Callum, a month ago in, in Washington. And I tried to thank her for, uh, for what she was doing and as her family was doing for the cause of freedom, but she shrugged it off. It was like the least we can do to fight for the cause of freedom for people in Ethiopia. This is the degree to which people, poor people, people in poor countries do care about freedom, are willing to go give up their lives for freedom. Eskender Nega smuggled another letter out of his jail cell on March 17, 2014, addressed to his son. He said, I miss you and your mother terribly. The pain is almost physical, but in this plight of our family is embedded the hope of a long-suffering people. There is no greater honor. There is no greater honor than to join this cause of freedom for poor people. So let me close by asking that we join with Eskender when he says in closing this letter that he, he wrote to his son, he said, we must bear any pain, travel any distance, climb any mountain, cross any ocean to complete this journey to freedom. Thank you very much. Okay, not your standard World Bank talk. We have time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone and uh, identify yourself and your affiliation, please. And we'll start, uh, we'll start right over here. Thank you. Hi, this is uh, Chris Jocknick with Oxfam. Um, I'm quite familiar with the case that you started with in Uganda. Oxfam did make quite a ruckus about that case. And in fact, the World Bank has been in the process of investigating. So I was a little surprised to hear how you characterized it. But I found your whole talk a little bit surprising. It's almost as if you're still reliving the Cold War. Are you not familiar with Pinochet, Samdo, uh, Suharto, any of the right-wing dictators uh, that the, the left and the human rights movement has been working for 20 or 30 years to address exactly based on what you are saying, that people need the freedom to actually be able to solve their own problems? And over the last 20 or 30 years, that has become the mantra of the development community that you're so quick to criticize. CARE, Oxfam, Mercy Corps, all of them operate on explicitly under a rights-based approach, which means people have to have the rights to solve their problems. I don't hear a mention of that in anything that you're talking about. It's as if you, you are unaware of where the development community has been and you're trotting out these stereotypes from the 40s and 50s or the World Bank, which yes, the World Bank has been problematic, of course, but come on, you, you I think, uh, should be offering a more nuanced critique of development than just going back to Cold War stereotypes like that. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm glad there's 
going to be a debate, and we're not. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I'm grateful for the work of that Oxfam did on this Uganda example. Um, there actually is not an investigation. The the World Bank, IFC, uh, CAO Ams Budman. I, I cite this in the in the conclusion to the book. They they went to the field and they wrote a report, but the report specifically said. Uh, this report will not comment on the merits of the case. And said that over and over again. So I don't call that an investigation. And they never, uh, there was a, a clause in which the World Bank was required to investigate its own role, and they didn't do that. So they really didn't, so I'll sort of double down on insisting that they really did not investigate. They did participate in an attempt at a confidential settlement, which in my my view, first of all, that there was a small settlement reach for one of the communities, which everyone described, everyone on the victim side described as, as ludicrously in, inadequate. And then everyone was sworn to confidentiality, even Oxfam. So it had the effect of shutting everyone up about this really notable case. They, the World Bank successfully played everyone to shut everybody up about this case. And I thought that was really, really, uh, really sad that they had shut everybody up. Now, I'm glad, that, I'm, I'm glad that you think that you're making some headway at Oxfam and at Human Rights Watch and Freedom House and many other uh, advocacy organizations that are working for freedom of different, uh, different kinds of rights, different kinds of human rights, different kinds of freedom. I think one of the problems of that community is they do split freedom up into too many small slices and advocate, they each advocate for one small slice. And nobody seems to have the big picture that all these freedoms go together. Human rights, political freedom, economic freedom, they all go together. And that's the package that the World Bank has never accepted. They may, the World Bank also selectively picks and chooses little slices of freedom. We'll take a little economic freedom here, but never any political rights, never any checks on the power of the government. Instead, we praise without reservation the, and give credit to the authoritarian government, the credit for development. So I really, you know, I'm glad that you think you're making progress, but from my point of view, you're not. I'm sorry. It's, you're, you may be making some progress compared to not existing at all. I'm glad you are doing what you're doing. But you're not, you're not making enough headway to really change the prevalent mindset and development, which is still very top-down, expert-driven, authoritarian, embracing authoritarian governments. Uh, the World Bank still has in its actual articles of agreement a clause that says it's not even allowed to consider the political character of the countries to which it is lending. And the World Bank presidents, uh, both Zelik and Jim Kim, have cited that clause as a reason they cannot even use the word democracy in their speeches. And the World Bank press spokesman has confirmed that fact and said, go read the Articles of Agreement. We're not allowed to use the word democracy. So this is the, I think the real world of development is closer to what I'm talking about. And I wish it was closer to what you were talking about, but I'm afraid it's not. Over here. Gordon Johnson, I'm a retired businessman, but I came to work in Washington to work on the Marshall Plan. And my question, uh, is there a basic conflict between freedom to choose in the economy and freedom to choose in politics. I mean, if we watch what's happening in Chile, all of the uh, the freedom that was there seems to be being taken away by the political process. You look at 
you could argue the same things happening in the United States with our health care system. Is it possible that we seem to elect people who are against freedom in economics, that there's a real conflict between these two processes? Um, well, first, let me make clear that political freedom is not just uh, majority vote elections. Uh, it, it has to include uh, political rights for the individual against what the state can do to them. A, a minimum set of rights that prevent the state from doing, from violating. Uh, you know, I have such and such rights that the state cannot violate, no matter what uh, a democratic majority says. Because otherwise, we would have a problem in democracy that's well known that's called the tyranny of the majority, in which a majority could vote to do horrible things to individuals or to minority groups. And so uh, uh, a complete definition of political rights has to include not just majority voting, but also the protections of the individual and the protections of the minorities against the power of the state, that their basic rights cannot be violated by the state. And, and exactly how large is that set of rights? That is another thing that is con con much contested over in the democratic debate. We don't have any other way of settling that other than a debate in a free society, how large should be the the, the set of rights that should not be violated by the state. And we have a lot of disagreement, of course, within the US across the political spectrum on that. That's not primarily the kind of debate I'm talking about. I'm talking about a much more extreme violation of the rights of poor people, in which, you know, examples like the involuntary resettlements in Uganda and Ethiopia could happen, which violate all of the rights, the land rights, the political rights, the right to protest, the right to to give your consent to, the, to what happens to you. All of these rights are violated in these examples, and this is a much more extreme violation of rights in poor people than what I'm talking about. Of course, the freedom is, is still a work in progress in, in all the rich countries, and is still uh, very much an object of contention in all the rich countries. There is no perfect land of freedom. There is no perfect way to achieve perfect freedom. There, there are no utopias on the table. Um, so I, and, you know, we should really call the U.S. still a developing country that's still finding ways that it could either make progress in development or it could make the wrong choices and go backwards on development. I agree that that's still very much under contention. But the kind of things that I'm talking about are a more extreme danger for poor people that they'll be denied at a much more extreme level, uh, a level of rights, that they'll be subject to much greater abuses of a, a much more authoritarian and totalitarian state that can violate their rights with complete impunity and brutality. That's, that's the danger that I'm talking about. Another question right here in front. I'm Bill Lewis, formerly McKinsey Global Institute. Um, I'm gonna come at you from the opposite direction from our colleague from, from Oxfam. I wonder if you're not overstating in today's world the importance of the official development community itself. The world is, is very different today than the conditions that we described. Uh, the private sector uh, all over, but particularly in the rich world, has shown that it's full of your strangers who can solve other people's problems. And they've demonstrated that they can go virtually anywhere in the world and operate and, and improve the productivity of the operations in those places. And so the, the poor countries of today don't have to go through the full innovation path that the rich countries did. They can take advantage of the innovations and levels of productivity that the rich countries not only have achieved, but have shown they can transfer 
virtually anywhere in the world. So this becomes, to me, more of a bilateral issue between, between the private actors and the countries themselves who, because of protections of incumbents, uh, privileges, distorted playing fields, prohibitions against foreign direct investment, the World Bank uh, has relatively little influence in, in that sort of world, and we've shown that they know that, that conditionality has failed. So India's preventing foreign direct investment in retailing at productivity levels 10 times the local is not that situation because of what the World Bank does. It, it's because of internal politics and the political economy of India. So to me, it's much more a question of, of the evolution of the political economy of the local countries and how to change that. And the, the official development world has not had and doesn't seem to have the leverage to have much influence on that. Um, well, I, I certainly agree. The, the, the money being dispensed by the official development world is, is trivial compared to the size of the, the economy of the developing countries. So in that sense, they're not very important. I guess I, did, I do think they have more intellectual importance than you're, you're giving them credit for. And I think, you know, regardless of how much importance they have, they have some importance. And to me, the sad thing is, is that they're putting that importance on the side of the authoritarians and not on, not on the side of freedom. And so it's, uh, you know, as a sort of mem longtime member of that world, I would wa want to at least get, you know, I, I agree there are, I think this is actually uh, uh, supporting the argument of the book that the the development community is going to have to adapt, or it's going to it's just going to disappear. It's going to, because this this worldview of the double standard that is based on so much paternalism and condescension is, of course, increasingly more and more unacceptable in the rest of the world. And there are uh, the trends are positive, as you say. There are the positive trends towards greater both economic and political freedom around the world. And if the development community does not adapt, if they can continue to stick with these biases in favor of conscious direction of, of autocrats, then I think they will, they I, I think what you're predicting has not happened yet, but I think it will happen if they refuse to adapt and re refuse to consider, even at least consider the debate for, for freedom and development. Uh, is there a question in the back? Right there, please. Yep. Yep. Uh, good afternoon. Janine Waddell, School of Public Policy, George Mason University. Very much appreciated your remarks and look forward to reading your book. Mm, thank um, you. Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to reading your book, and I'm actually going to buy a copy and have you autograph. Oh, keep going. Yeah, you're, you're, on a roll. you're on a roll. Keep going. I not like this question as much. So my question is, why, why did you call it the tyranny of experts instead of, say, the tyranny of economists? Because economists, are, are they not at the helm of these development organizations that you're talking about? And it, is it not economists' models that, in addition to, to many of the problems that you have discussed, is it not those, those models and ways of thinking that have led to so many of the problems? Um, no, no, and no. <laughs> 
Um, no, you know, I, what I observe is the, the economists have really lost a lot of power in the development world. And, uh, and that's, that's why I did not think it was sufficient to call it the, to attribute everything going on to the economists, because there is, there are lots of other experts that have appeared on the scene now. There are the nation building experts that claim to be fixing failed states, which is an even more ridiculous degree of hubris of social engineering, another society with the help of an army. Uh, there are the, uh, the social sector experts who uh, use extremely vague language about empowering uh, mainstreaming gender, empowering poor women, uh, building civil society. These are not economists. They are experts. Uh, they, but they, again, share this, pre uh, this pretension that they are the ones that determine the solutions. Okay, we'll go over there. Uh, Pat Spann, uh, just myself, I guess. Um, I hate to admit when it was, but in the late 60s when I was in college, I took a elective course on uh, developing um, uh, developing nations. Or, uh, and um, I remember at the time they were talking about, um, well, of course, uh, I went to military academies because they referred to it as a Soviet model, uh, stressing heavy industry, yeah. and that would yeah. uh, uh, raise all boats. And I wondered, did... did um, at the same time, they also said that um, you can't look at South Korea or Taiwan because we pumped so much money into them in the 50s that they couldn't not fail, that they were capitalized to, to the max because of uh, uh, national defense reasons. But what I'm wondering is, is did, did that heavy industry model ever, ever really work? And when, did it, when was, it, was it ever abandoned or is it still, they still got the thinking uh, you, know, you build steel mills in India and wherever. I, I guess this was post-World War II type thinking. Yeah, well, that's, um, I think part of the progress in economic freedom has been a, a movement away from, and I think this is also your point about how much are we still in the world of the, the 50s and 60s and 70s in development. Uh, I think there has been progress on economic freedom and sort of removing th these ideas, this sort of standard approach of building a, a state-owned steel mill uh, is, is no longer uh, as acceptable as a development practice as it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. That's part of the progress of economic freedom. So, you know, I'm doing a balancing act here. I'm describing a world in which there is progress towards greater economic freedom, but still not a fundamental recognition of the, the debate or even the willingness to have the debate that, that uh, and I think a lot of the progress is in spite of the development community rather than because of it, that there have been, you know, people in, in poor countries, they want to have more freedom for themselves, both economic and political. And that's, and that's why some of these statist ideas have gone out of power because there's been economic and political resistance movements that demanded more freedom for themselves. Okay, uh, we'll take a question right there in the middle and then... My name was Ulrich Shiva. I also was at the bank many years ago. But I'm going to pick up on this Soviet Union example. When you take the Soviet Union, there's clearly an enormous progress in per capita income and, and well-being of the population under the Soviet totally centrally planned system. Would you, would you go to so, so far to say that this would have happened anyhow, 
the justhood should have been more patient? Or would you say, well, it couldn't last and we know it collapsed and therefore it wasn't really progress? Well, um, well, I think, you know, the, there was a view for a long time that there was this enormous progress under central planning in the, in the Soviet five-year plans. Um, and I think towards, towards the end of the, so the life of the Soviet Union, people were already starting to realize how wrong that, that view was. They were already starting to revise the numbers drastically downward. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot more data has come out. So that view is really no longer viable. Uh, there was, you know, at an enormous sacrifice and, uh, of consumption, there was some growth of industrial capacity, which was, you know, which was something. Um, but it, it was not the rapid rate of progress that was believed to exist at the time in the West. It, it, the numbers later did not bear that out. And, you know, and when Westerners started visiting the Soviet Union personally a lot in in person, including me, I, when I first went to, to the Soviet Union in 1989, you know, you, I, I don't like to rely on personal impressions, but I, it was one of the shocking, most shocking experiences of my work, whole work career that I had also had this image of this idea of rapid progress under the Soviet Union. And the Moscow looked like the most decrepit, run-down, falling-apart place that you can imagine when I, when I first arrived there in 89. Again, not to give too much credit to personal impressions because the numbers were also drastically revised downward after we got more accurate information. They were basically just producing a lot of crap that nobody wanted and that's why there was such a catastrophic depression after the end of the Soviet Union is because there were all, the, all this industrial capacity could not compete with even the, any imports from the West because it was just such bad quality stuff, nobody wanted it and there was this an enormous recession after after the end of, of the sort of protection that had existed for central planning. Take a, take a question. Well, we got to move on to another question. We'll take a question in the back, please. And then we'll move back up. Hi, Vera Chernova with DC Microfinance Meetup. And I just, since you mentioned Ukraine and Soviet Union came up, I'm half Ukrainian, half Russian, you know, raised for several years in Soviet Union. I'm sorry, I'm, I can't hear you very well. Yes, so you. when okay. you talk about the can you repeat freedom, what you Can you repeat what you just said? Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm Vera Chernova. I was born in Soviet Union, spent many years there. Then I was raised in Russia and Ukraine. And since you mentioned Ukraine, when you say economic freedom, it's interesting to me because how much freedom can you have if your country is poor and you have World Bank you know, coming, offering money with certain conditions, or you have, for, say, Russia also offering money with certain conditions. You cannot say no to both because the country is poor. There are certain things you have to get. So you can want the freedom, economic freedom, but I just don't see how can you possibly get it or demand it like in certain state? Um, so I, I'm not sure if your question is, can poor people really have economic freedom or if you're complaining, which I would also complain about the coercion of both the World Bank and Russia <laughs> in, in their offering money. Sorry, for your solution. Like, well, how can you fix this? There's really, you're saying people will demand it, but what can you demand? You're, you're not in a position to demand anything. 
Well, I think poor people are in the position to demand quite a lot as long as they're not subject to invasion from a hostile neighbor, which I really hope doesn't happen in, in Ukraine. Um, uh, I th and, and poor people have successfully demanded a lot, both in the history of, of Western countries and Japan and the more recent history of South Korea, Taiwan, Botswana, Chile, uh, all over the world, people have, have demanded greater economic and political freedom. And that's been associated not with them staying poor, but with rising, rising prosperity and attainment of a high level of prosperity. So, you know, I, poor people, they, we have this tendency to think of economic freedom as something that the rich want. That's, you know, the, the, the farmers in Uganda whose farms were taken away at gunpoint, that was a violation of their economic freedom among, among other, many other things. They really want the right to have their own land, to produce their own goods. There's a, uh, a, a survey so that uh, my friend Lant Pritchett did of kind of going around the world and interviewing people about their views on many things, including freedom. And the, a peasant in Uganda just said, I want the right to do what I want with my own cow. You know, I think poor people do want the right to do what they want with their own goods and to, and to have the right to make their own living without uh, being heavily taxed and regulated and oppressed by the state. And that's and that what that is what creates prosperity. So I think they both want it, and it, and it works for them. Okay, we'll take a question right there. Okay. My name is Stephen Shore. I'm inclined to agree with you. I think poor people should not be oppressed, and that nation should develop. In um, have democratic input for economic growth, but is there not a fundamental paradox? You contrasted the good Hayek with the bad Gunnar Myrdal, and even though you say you're not a utopian and that experts are bad, don't you posit the libertarian ideal as a kind of universal utopian vision for mankind that if we could only include the input of the poor in the less developed world that we would be closer to universal happiness. I mean, isn't this a paternalism uh, equal to that which you condemned? And are you not, despite yourself, an expert on uh, economic development? No. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, um, you're raising, you're raising a, a paradox that I think is a good one, is a good one to discuss. First of all, I'm not, I'm not, outlining some kind of utopia that I'm imposing on anyone. Uh, I'm describing a world that has actually already been happening uh, throughout the world, the spread of political and economic freedom. I'm, it happens gradually. I'm not saying that there has to be some utopian level of this freedom before anything else good will ever happen. That's not how it happens. It happens gradually and, and slowly in, uh, in messy transitions in which there are sometimes moves backward and then forward again, two steps forward, one step back. So there's no utopias available. Nobody's offering utopias. Um, what, what I think you, it, the, the good question that I, that, I, that I think you are raising though is there is this paradox. The, um, the expert who uh, is, is suggesting this world that is, is not, does not happen from conscious direction by experts and happens through spontaneous solutions. Uh, well, you know, how, uh, how did that expert come by that knowledge? <laughs> and why is that expert so sure about that? You know, there is that paradox that, you know, how do we, uh, I, th I think 
it, it really comes down into what do we really mean by the word expert? You know, I think the, what I mean by the, 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 in, in the, the world I'm describing, there could be good experts and bad experts. The good experts have humility. They realize the limitations of their own knowledge. They believe that, that they have, have seen around them a world emerge from spontaneous solutions mainly and not conscious direction and that the stylized facts suggest uh, evidence for freedom working better than development, for development better than autocracy. And that's, you know, that's the evidence. But, um, you know, they also recognize that they could be wrong and that they themselves should be subject to some kind of democratic accountability if they're wrong. And that's the crucial point about the, what the tyranny of experts gets wrong, is that the, the development experts are not subject to any kind of democratic accountability. We have sort of the worst of all worlds. We have sort of unappointed experts devising plans for other people in which they will never be held accountable if those plans go wrong. And, and they will suffer no negative consequences if the, even if those plans are disastrous for other people. And so that's the tyranny of experts, of unaccountable experts, whereas an experts within a free society would be more specialized experts that would solve you know, a specific medical problem or a specific infrastructure problem, or they would be social scientists who just explain the working of the whole society, not in some sort of comprehensive way that this kind of knowledge now enables me to myself become a social planner where I could achieve the perfect, the perfect world if you just give me enough power. No, that's not the world I'm talking about. Uh, I have achieved enough knowledge about how societies work to know that I should not have that power and nobody should have that power. And Hayek also said I should not have that power and nobody should have that power. So that's the paradox of experts. You become an expert into why there should not be experts. <laughs> we have time for a few more, few more questions. We'll take one right here. Hi, I'm Judith Gold from the IMF. And I'm oh, surprised. Oh, great. <laughs> great. <laughs> Welcome the, from the IMF. Yes, from the conversation. But I, I share the point of view of a few others here, whether you're ascribing too much importance to our role and whether we really have so many options. Could you speak, speak into the microphone? So, so my question is, we we're, we're simply deal with the governments that are there. We don't promote autocracies more than democracies. And I think everyone in the official aid world is very happy to see the move towards democracies. And we're like embracing that. So it's like, so, I mean, we are dealing, we're just a UN agency, an extension of the UN family. And we're, we're deal with sovereign governments, whoever they may be. And even in that, we were limited by geopolitical games because we couldn't deal with any communist countries you know, as you know, and yeah. uh, so, so, it's, so why, so the World Bank is just another arm of kind of the Western right, right. political diplomatic strategy and uh, rather than evil and supporting autocracies, I think that yeah, really yeah. I agree with the gentleman from Oxfam that that yeah, era yeah. has long passed and yeah, even there there's yeah. still some leftovers in very selected places in the world, but for the most part, well, they're gone. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think the era has passed because of, the, of what else that you're saying, that you are politically constrained to work with the governments that are there. And that's the reality that you, uh, so I'm, and I'm not even talking about any specific plans to change how the World Bank or the IMF operates on that. That's a very difficult problem to solve. My, the point is, is that when World Bank or IMF people speak 
they're, they're a force for exactly the reasons that you say, to sort of self-censor themselves, that we cannot talk about politics, we cannot talk about rights, we cannot talk about freedom or democracy because of our political constraints. And then, but these are important voices in the room in the global conversation on development. So what I'm saying is I I'm not attacking IMF or World Bank staff as being individually bad people. I understand you're politically constrained to, to recognize authoritarian governments and to have to work with them. Uh, but that means that when you participate in the debate on development that happens at the global level, you do all, all of the, the world, mainly the, the management of the IMF and the World Bank are constrained to do so in a way that they have to censor themselves to not even say the words freedom or democracy or rights because they are politically constrained. And I'm saying we should reject that kind of censorship. We should, the rest of us should not be constrained to be censored, to not allowed to discuss these concepts. We should be allowed to embrace these concepts openly and not, uh, not give so much importance to the self-censored voices that talks about development as some kind of technical problem that is going to be politically neutral with respect to whatever government is in power, when the government that is in power is the main obstacle to development. And we're prevented from openly saying that because of the political realities that you talk about. Well, that should not be the voices that dominate this debate. And we should not restrict the debate to be forced by those political constraints to avoid the debate that we should be having, that the dictators are the problem, they're not the solution. Okay, let me collect the last uh, few questions in one round, and then uh, we're gonna have to call an end to this. So uh, we'll start with, with, with her, then you, and you're the lucky one over there. Hi, so um, I'm Alicia Phillips Mandeville from the Millennium Challenge Corporation. So I'm, I'm not constrained. I can talk about democracy and economic great, rights and land great, rights and great. all kinds of other rights. Um, great. Uh, and I'm, there's a separate, I know you said this isn't about AIDS, so I'll take the point actually from there and ask you a deeper question about when you can consider the form of government and the rights of individuals and their economic freedoms and all of the other things that you highlight as critical to development, can you talk a little bit about the role of capital in those spaces? Um, because I think a lot of the conversation today has been about, is it a world where all governments are bad and all aid is going therefore to bad places or has the world changed from that space? Um, imagine that the world has changed enough where there are some governments where capital could be given without violating everyone's human rights. In those spaces, what is the right way to think about capital and the role of development? Um, that should be part of this debate about how development proceeds and, and, and what contributes to it. Uh, okay. If you don't mind. Okay. Could you give her the mic, please? Thank you. Uh, Francis Johnson, also a uh, <clears throat> relic of the Marshall Plan. Lately, we have two eminent um, figures who've appeared on the, on the world scene. One is Pope Francis, and one is Dr. Jim uh, Kim of the World Bank. They have provided leadership to the world to say we, we the world, can uh, deal with poverty and abolish poverty. One looks then at the uh, mode that they have in mind, and it is somewhat a redistribution of the wealth. If you have wealth, think about it, shouldn't you uh, share it? Now, where will the voices come from? Uh, there's no set answer, but perhaps journalists or writers who say to the uh, uh, governors of the world who are stealing from the people 
who are establishing taxes and rates and regulations that draw from the people and channel that money to the rich in the country. We know what we're, uh, uh, we have seen instances of this and a, a new base of conversation that deals with those kind of questions of who, who are the actual abusers seems what um, to be in order or what we can encourage to happen. Okay, and then we'll take a question over here. Hi, I, I'm Jae Min-son uh, from Gangnang Daily News, Korean media. Uh, it is uh, interesting. I'm sorry, can you? Could you start over? The mic wasn't please, working. Please start over. Jae Min-son with Gangnang Daily News, uh, South Korean media. It is interesting for you to uh, make an example of the Korean cases uh, but uh, for me, it is quite ironic that uh, the current Korean conservative government is quite emphasizing on the Korean development model to the uh, to the to the uh, achievement of the autocrat autocratic uh, leaders' planning, uh, prudent planning, instead of uh, the people's uh, fight for democracy or the or the entrepreneurship you, you emphasized. Yeah. Uh, ready? Yeah. Okay. So um, several good questions here. What about, uh, what about capital going to good places? Well, I think capital is already going to good places and it will keep going to good places. Uh, that's what private capital flows already do. Um, I think uh, MCC is a, is a positive organization to provide some capital to good places. That's fine. But uh, most, the vast bulk of capital going to good places is coming from, from private sources and will continue to. And that's part of global, global economic freedom. Um, as far as Pope Francis and Jim Kim setting the goal of abolishing poverty, um, this is really kind of a... Um, it seems to be kind of like a backing backing down in the ambition of, of what development is about and what it's setting out to do. It's like almost uh, trying to shrink the ambition to match the uh, the the, uh, the scarce resources that are available to the increasingly available to the to, to the bank. Uh, because extreme poverty is defined as less than a dollar twenty five a day. You don't automatically become non-poor after you earn more than $1.25 a day. Uh, there's lots more poverty in the world than extreme poverty, and uh, abolishing poverty will not happen by 2030. It will be a continuing effort that, again, will rely on how much success we make on this battle of ideas on what what is the best way to move out of poverty into prosperity, uh, in which we're talking about people who live on $10 a day who are still very poor, or $20 a day are still very poor. And, it, and they also want, want progress. And for that, it depends not on, on sort of great world leaders, but on the, uh, the efforts of poor people than themselves. Um, so the last question on South Korea's autocratic uh, leaders uh, development model. You know, I, I just will continue to insist, I think there's a lot of mythology here about giving uh, too much credit to individual authoritarian leaders, such as, say, Park Chung-hee in, in, uh, in, uh, in South Korea, whose daughter is, is now the, the president, right? So there's some, 
So maybe she benefited from some sort of uh, development halo that he got from presiding over rapid growth. But he was presiding over a rapid change in freedom. That's, and I think I really want to try to insist, and this is the sense in which we are still fighting this battle despite the claim that we've already resolved this battle and that the, the development world has already accepted it. I think we are, are still fighting this battle on what, how does uh, greater development and greater freedom really come about? And I, I really want to get, suggest an alternative view that we should debate, that it's not... Uh, a wise dictator who decides to grant economic freedom and or pursue, you know, wise industrial policies that promote certain industries that turn out to work. Uh, none of that is really, really holds up much under scrutiny. What's really going on is, first of all, gro growth and economic freedom is, is just like growth and political freedom. It's often in, happening as a result of indigenous resistance movements. People demand more economic rights for themselves. They find ways to work around the state to try to escape the state's oppression of their economic rights. They move into the informal sector to, uh, or they change industries, they go underground, they smuggle, they, they find lots of ways to resist the state. And that forces the state to give, as it sees that it's, it's losing control over the economy, it's forced to give up some of that control and allow greater economic freedom. And I think a, a more bottom-up view of the way greater economic freedom happens is something that we should really consider seriously and not anoint as heroes some, some autocrats who happen to be on the scene while that process was, was happening. I really think that that view should be taken seriously. And I'll suggest a little bit of statistical evidence just to buttress that. This whole kind of great man theory of development, that there are certain great men who presided over r very rapid growth rates. Well, do they really get the credit for the growth rates? You can do st statistical exercises that test these sort of great men theories of, of growth rates, and the tests don't really support that, that view. Uh, to support that view, you would need to see kind of a uh, abrupt changes in growth when one leader one great leader leaves the scene as, and is succeeded by a, a less great leader, a mediocre leader, or vice versa, a mediocre leader is succeeded by a, a great autocratic leader. There, we have this v vision of, you know, really great and really terrible autocrats, and we're giving the recognition of the great autocrats that presided over rapid growth rate is still giving too much kind support to the authoritarian view because frankly, the data just don't line up that way. You don't see the changes in growth that are associated with changes in leaders. It's not the leaders that are driving the growth. It's something that's more fundamental that was going on in South Korea at the country level, like this economic resistance leading to greater economic freedom, the political resistance that led to greater political freedom, even region-wide uh, movement towards the explosion of trade in the whole East Asian region which had a lot to do with transnational forces like the overseas Chinese diaspora that was spreading, facilitating trade throughout Southeast Asia, the emergence of Japan as, a, as sort of a growth pole for the whole region. So there's a lot of non-national stuff going on that's explaining a lot of this sort of concentration of success in East Asia. And the important lesson is just that it's not about the great leaders advised by the wise experts. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time, and I do hope that your friends in the development community buy your book and join the Association of Helping Other People. Thank you very much for joining us today, and please uh, help me in thanking Bill for his time. Thank you. Thank you.